I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 27. That's right, buddy. And I got nothing. <laughs> nothing but two awesome fucking stories. That's true. I'm kind of <laughs> excited about mine. I, well, it doesn't matter. I was going to say it doesn't matter. <laughs> oh, Lord. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this is not off to a good start. Okay. I have two shout outs I want to give. Okay. The first one is to Allie A, who became, who upped her Patreon membership. Yes. And so she became a beautiful creepster, I think. She did. So she gets the bonus episodes and the bloopers. The bloopers. So thank you, Allie, for upping your Patreonage. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. The other thing I want to shout out is Amy on the Facebook group who clarified why a sawed-off shotgun is illegal. And then it made me actually do some Googling, too. Okay. So she said that the reason sawed-off shotguns are illegal is because they're so easily concealed when they're sawed off. Okay. And so I started doing some digging, of course, after that. And I was like, I really should have looked that shit up beforehand. But thank you, Amy, <laughs> for clarifying that. The other thing I found was that, because you remember us talking about, I'm like, well, you would think that it would make it not as powerful because mm-hmm. the bullet doesn't have as much fart, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, it actually makes it more powerful. But when you, the problem is when you saw it off like that, it loses its accuracy. Oh. And so anything less than 18 inches is against the law unless you have a specific permit for it oh. through the ATF, which I'm like, why would they ever approve that? But anyway. Yeah. So, yeah, that's why. Very cool. The other thing I learned about last week's episode was I went back and listened to it, and I was sitting in the parking lot waiting on Donna to get to dinner tonight. Mm -hmm. And apparently, I hit the mic at one, well, twice. But the first time I hit the mic, I'm sitting in the parking lot, you know, listening. I don't even know what the hell I was doing. And I thought somebody knocked on my window (laughs) of my car. I was like, turned around. I was like, what the fuck? Did Donna get here and she's trying to scare me? Yeah. Ain't nobody there. And then I was like, did I hit the mic? And I hit the, like, 15-second rewind, and I was like, son of a bitch. I did hit it, because Donna <laughs> always tells me, stop hitting it. I was like, dang, it scared the crap out of me. So, sorry if anybody else thought someone was attacking you. <laughs> it was the attack of the microphone. Oh, gosh. <laughs> we are professional. I mean, and you know what? At the very beginning, I've already hit it once today. Now everybody in podcast land is going to be like, damn, every time I hit a mic, they're all going to be like cued into it every uh-huh. time I smack it. Yep. Smack that bitch up. I never knew what else they said on that song. That's like <laughs> the only words I know of that on those lyrics. I'm pretty sure that's the only thing I know too. Let's, let's be honest. I don't know any words to any lyrics. True. <laughs> Didn't know where you were going with that, but true. <laughs> all right. Anything else? Oh, oh, yes. Oh, shit. Also, going to backtrack to Allie. Allie said she messaged us on Facebook and was like, I didn't know if anybody else noticed or told y'all, but in my story, I said something happened in 1885. It was like April 11th, 1885. And I was like, that's the day I was born. <laughs> it's oh, like, gosh. Mm-mm. First of all, I was not born in the 1800s. <laughs> Second of all, neither did my story happen in the 1800s. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> So I don't know what made me change a nine to an eight, but here we are. <laughs> I am not, in fact, 133 years old. <laughs> Just 33. That's funny. All right. Well, you go first. Okay. 
Y'all, I just, hold on. I just want y'all to know that I'm pretty sure a whole forest was killed. <laughs> In the making of this podcast. Holy <laughs> shit. She came with a dissertation. <laughs> My ass is going to go numb. I just feel it already. <laughs> oh, I can't help it. So the story I'm going to do today is about serial killer Dennis Andrew Nilsson. Okay. Have you ever heard of him? No. Okay. When you hear the story, I, when I was doing all the research for it and stuff, I was like, I think My Favorite Murder did an episode on this because a piece of the story reminded me of something they talked about before. Okay. But I Googled it and I couldn't find the episode. So either I'm really shitty at Googling <laughs> or I'm hallucinating an episode. Okay. Okay. So Dennis Nielsen was born November 23rd, 1945. In Fraserboro, Aberdeenshire, in Scotland. Okay. So he was the second of three children. His father was a Norwegian soldier who traveled to Scotland in the in the 40s. He was part of the Free Norwegian Forces following the Nazi occupation of Norway. Okay. So he and Dennis's mom had like a quick little courtship, newlyweds really, really quickly, And his mom, Elizabeth, her parents did not like his father, Olav. So they had a very difficult relationship. Olav was very into his job, wasn't around very much. But they ended up having three kids. And after the birth of the third kid, Dennis's mom was like, we rushed into this. I want a divorce. Damn. And so six years later, they got divorced. So all three of the kids and the mom moved into the maternal grandparents' house. They were amazing grandparents, super supportive. Awesome. Um, so Dennis had a, a really good childhood with his grandfather. They'd go to picnics in the Scottish countryside. Gosh. They would go to the harbor and, like, just kind of hang out. He and his grandfather, they were best buddies. That is so freaking sweet. I know. Well, Dennis's grandfather was a fisherman and... He was, his health was declining. He was not a healthy man. And so in October of 1951, while out fishing in the North Sea, his grandfather died of a heart attack at age 62. Oh, fuck. So they brought his body back to have a, you know, a funeral. And Dennis later said that one of his most vivid memories is his mother weeping and asking him if he wanted to see his grandfather. And so they took him into the room where his grandfather was. It was an open casket. And he just remembers looking at the body, his heart beating really fast, and his mom telling him that his grandfather was sleeping. And so, I don't know, I just felt that was, I don't know, that touched me in a way. Because when you think about being a kid and going to funerals and, yeah. you know, or ha you having kids that are going to funerals and what they remember and, and all of that, you know. Yeah, well... I didn't say a whole lot because I'm thinking, okay, does this spur something like Ed Kemper yeah. or something like yeah. that? So I didn't know where that was going. But, okay, it was a sweet moment. I think so. Sweet, sad, somber. Yeah. Well, after the, the death of his grandfather, he definitely became more reserved. He would go to the harbor by himself to watch the boats like he and his grandfather used to do. He just was kind of a loner after that. He was often jealous of his older brother because his brother was really popular and had all these friends, whereas he did not. He really only played with his younger sister, and they were super, super close. 
So one time, Dennis goes out to the harbor by himself. This was in like 1954, 55. He goes out by himself and somehow gets like submerged underneath the water and almost gets dragged out to sea. Holy fuck. So he's under the water, panicking, flailing around, gasping for air. And he said that he later said that he believed that his grandfather was going to come and pull him out. And right after he was thinking that his grandfather was going to come pull him out, he he experienced like this tranquil peace, like yeah. he was going to die. But then another kid like pulled him out of the water and saved him. Gosh. So what happens when you almost die in water? Mm-hmm. A head injury. Mm-hmm. An anoxic brain injury. Golly. So not long after that happened, his mother, like him and his, his siblings and his mother moved out of the grandparents' house. They got a, you know, a flat of their own and she got remarried and in four years had four more kids. Holy. <laughs> I know. I know. At first, Dennis hated his stepfather because he was very strict and he thought that he wasn't fair. But then he eventually kind of came around to him and started liking his stepfather. Okay. About the onset of puberty is when Dennis started noticing his sexual preference for other men, for other boys. And so he was like, okay, well, I'm homosexual. He's confused. He feels shame. Remember, this is 1955. Yes, bless him. And so he wanted to, he, you know, Tried to keep his sexuality hidden from not only his family, but his friends, too. He well, that's no- good because he didn't have any. Uh, right. I know. But could you imagine just living that lie, though? I mean, no. it just breaks my heart. Yeah. Well. Well, and even then, even he had no friends. So even if he wanted to tell one good friend. He didn't have it. He didn't have it. Mm-mm. Damn. Well, some of the boys that he found himself attracted to. He, because remember, his sister was younger than him, and he's just now going through puberty. Yeah. So he found that some of the boys that he was attracted to actually looked a lot like his sister, Sylvia. So one time he molested his sister. Oh, no, no, no. And he, yeah. So in his, I don't even, not really prepubescent, but pubescent mind, he thought that maybe his attraction to these boys that looked like her was actually him just kind of manifesting his feelings for her. And so I I think he was just trying to figure it out. It wasn't, I mean, obviously he molested his sister. That is not okay. Right. But I think that it was just in his mind, him trying to figure it out. And I'm like, you know what? You had one person in your corner and you went and fucked that up. I know. Well, and then he started thinking to himself, well, like, okay, so if me liking these young boys because they look like her, maybe that means I really do like her. So maybe that means I'm bisexual, not homosexual. And so I think it's just a really shitty rationalization to make himself try to fit some mold that he thinks he should be in 1955. Yeah. He ended up leaving high school at the age of 16 to join the Army. So he passed his entrance exams and enlisted. He had to enlist for nine years. That was in 1961. He started his training, and he his training was in Oldershot. So while he was stationed at Oldershot, that's when those kind of latent 
homosexual feelings started coming back up. You know, he had been keeping it hidden from his colleagues in the army pretty well, but like he couldn't, he wouldn't even take showers with the men in his company because he was so scared that he would get an erection while in the showers. And so instead he would shower alone so that he had all the privacy and he could masturbate as much as he wanted to while he was in the shower. Okay. So his goal in the military was that he wanted to basically become a caterer. He was in the army catering corps. And so basically he wanted to be a caterer. So he had to do these, this, ex- these exams to be a caterer, like it was a big deal. I don't, I don't really, you know, I don't really understand the inner workings of yeah. how that works, but that was his goal. So he worked a lot, but he also started to drink a lot. Like he even described himself as, quote, hardworking, boozy a lot. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's a good Tinder profile right um, there. Uh, and you mean grinder. Grinder. yeah, sorry. <laughs> okay. So there was this one time that, he was out drinking, and a young guy who was German got absolutely shit-faced together. And when he woke up, he found that he was at the Germans, the German guy's flat at his apartment. And even though they didn't have sex, it kind of sparked a fantasy in Dennis. And the sexual fantasy was having a sexual partner who was really young, a slender male that was completely passive. And so the fantasies kept evolving to where his partner would be unconscious or dead. Oh, gosh. That went south real fast. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of times that he would, in order to, this like, I can't even wrap my brain about this. But what, so what he would do was, Sometimes he would pretend that he was really shit-faced and, like, lay on his stomach, like, naked around other men in hopes that they would, like, try to rape him while he's fake drunk. Yeah. You know, like, that was part of his sexual fantasies. Did anyone ever do it? Mm Mm-mm. So, in 1967, he was deployed to South Yemen at a prison posting. So this was an incredibly dangerous posting as compared to where he had been in West Germany or Norway. And, you know, while they were there that they, he lost, they lost a lot of men from like ambushes and stuff. One time he was even kidnapped by a taxi driver who beat him unconscious and put him in the trunk. Once the, I guess the guy got to wherever he wanted to go and pulled him out of the truck or, I'm sorry, trunk, Dennis grabbed a jack handle and (laughs) knocked the shit out of the driver, beating him unconscious, like, to protect himself. Like, the guy had him locked in the trunk. When he got out of the trunk, he grabbed the handle of the jack. Oh, my God. All I picture is the hangover when they have him (laughs) in the trunk and he jumps out. (laughs) Well, that's kind of what happened. And then, so after he knocked the guy unconscious, he, like, put him in the trunk of the car. Okay. So at this posting, he had his own room as opposed to his other ones where he was like in what you would think of as army barracks. Yeah. And so this let him kind of develop his sexual fantasies more because he was by himself. Right. So in order to 
like compensate for not having an unconscious man there to either have sex with or masturbate on. He rigged up his room to where he could lay on his stomach and reflect his image in the mirror so that like he had like a freestanding mirror, you know, so he could like tilt it down. Whereas it looked to him like his body, like it had his head chopped off, you know, so it looked like his body was an unconscious body of another man. And that's how he would like, in his words, like split his personality into like, yeah, like a domineering and a passive partner and masturbate. That's a whole lot of fucking work. And because of his, quote, near-death experience or, you know, the the trauma with the Mm -hmm. cab driver, it only added to kind of that sexual fantasy, you know, imagery that was already building up. Right. What this one article said, his most vivid recalled fantasy was a slender, attractive, blonde soldier who had been recently killed in a battle who is dominated by a faceless quote, dirty, gray-haired old man who washed the body before engaging in intercourse with its spread-eagled corpse. That's quite specific. Right? I mean, if you have a type. (laughs) (laughs) He ain't going to find that on Grindr. Sorry. (laughs) Go to Craigslist. (laughs) Look, that is a quite specific. Grindr is too fancy for that. No, I'm just kidding. You know, I was thinking about that, like, I bet he was, like, smorgasbord, smorgasbord, if he was around, like, the ambushes and stuff like that. I know. Nothing I saw said that he went buck wild while he was there. Yeah. Um, Well, he did in his hand. Yeah, to himself. But I don't know of any, like, sexual encounters or anything like that that came from that. When he – okay, so when that deployment was done, he returned to Britain – And there he had a post where he would cook for 30 soldiers and two officers daily. And about one year after being transferred there, he then went to Berlin, where that's the first time that he had his first sexual experience with a female. He hired a sex worker. Other than his sister. True. He hired a sex worker and, of course, bragged to his colleagues about it. Oh, I think it is. Okay, I need you to lay flat on your face. Perfectly still. Don't move. Don't breathe. (laughs) Stop looking at me, swan. (laughs) She's going to be like, okay, just lay there. (laughs) She's going to be like, the easiest night I've had. (laughs) God, too far. That was too far. So he told all of his colleagues that, that he had sex with her, but that it was, quote, overrated and depressing. Oh, well, that's two thumbs down. Depending on who you are. Could just be the one. (laughs) Okay, so after 11 years, he ended his military career, the rank of a corporal, and that was in October of 1972. Sorry. Also, since he was the chef, Mm -hmm. I can't believe he didn't poison them, slip them something, you know, and render them helpless. Yeah, because he was the cook. Yeah. Yeah. So between October and December of 72... He lived back with his family, kind of trying to decide where he, what he wanted to do with his life. And his mom was really giving him a hard time, like, don't worry about your career. You need to get married. You need to have kids. Ugh, the worst. Mm-hmm. And so one time he was like, okay. And he went out with his older brother, Olav, who was named after the father. He's junior. And his sister-in-law. 
Um, that he's OJ. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, I get it. <laughs> but in another, they, so it was those three and then another couple. So bless his heart. He was the fifth wheel. Been there. Understand, Dennis. But they Still went. Still there. Yeah, true. But they went and watched a documentary about male homosexuality. What? I don't know. Was that his thing? Oh, this looks really interesting. I don't know. I don't know. So. That just seems weird as a date. I, I don't know if maybe it was just playing at the local theater. I have okay. no idea. Maybe. Anyway, so they go to watch a documentary. After it's over, the the two couples were just really speaking terribly about homosexuality and all of that. And Dennis was like, um, y'all are fuck faces and was, you know, on the defense yeah. about gay rights and all of that. And so they got into a big argument and his brother Olav told Dennis's mom that Dennis is gay. He never told his brother, but because he defended gay rights, then of course that has to mean he's gay. Oh my God. That's still today. I know. I know. I mean, he actually was, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> so after that, he never spoke to his older brother again and then only talked to his mother like on rare occasions. So, again, it just goes to this long life of he really did have a great family, but he not to put words in his mouth, but felt like an outcast because he was, quote, different from them. And clearly they did not understand. Yeah. And were not supportive. And so even just walking, watching a documentary, he felt like an outcast. Yeah. You know. So in the mid-1973, he kind of starts coming into his own, I think, and accepting his sexuality and starts going to gay pubs. He started having casual sex with different men. But later recounted and said that those sexual liaisons were, quote, soul-destroying and a, quote, vain search for inner peace. Because his desire in life was a partner, a long-lasting relationship. He wanted a, he wanted marriage. He wanted the, or I don't know about marriage, but he wanted a lifelong partner. Just to be unconscious sometimes. Right. I'm just going back to Grinder. His Grinder tagline could be going to a pub looking for a cub. I mean, could be. I mean, there you go, Dennis, serving you up some realness. So around this time, Dennis's father passed away and he left his children a decent sum of money. And so Dennis kind of feeling lost in life. He didn't really know where he wanted his career to go. He was having these casual sexual encounters that wasn't they weren't satisfying to him and so he just kind of was i don't want to say it like a midlife crisis but this was his opportunity to quit his current job and figure out what he wanted to do with his life yeah he started to work as a civil servant in may of 1974 and so his job was at the job center in denmark street where his his role was to find work for unskilled laborers. In November of 1975, Dennis met a 20-year-old by the name of David Galichon. And when he met him, David was outside of a pub and being threatened by two men. So Dennis was like, swooped in to help him. And Here, I come to save the day. And was like, um... Fuck y'all. 
protected him and was like, you want to come hang out with me at my house? We'll drink a little bit. You know, I'll get you chilled out. That yeah. kind of thing. So David had just recently moved to London and he himself was gay as well. He was unemployed, young, 20-year-old, living in a hostel because he didn't have any money. What does Dennis do? Say, come live with me. Oh, shit. Why not? Just come live with me. So they decided, I mean, moved at lightning speed and decided to live together and find a larger place to live because now there's two of them. Oh, of course. But yet David doesn't have a job. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, but Dennis had the inheritance yeah, and all that, which wasn't a lot. But anyway. Terrible choice. Yeah. They moved into a new flat at 195 Melrose Avenue. Ooh, 90210. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they had their, their flat, and then they had also negotiated with the landlord so that they had exclusive rights to the garden at the back of the property. So the the flat was supposed to be furnished, but of course there wasn't much in it when they got there. Nothing is ever as it's supposed to be. Right. So they, you know, furnished it. We're having this great life. You know, they had a where Dennis was kind of the breadwinner and David, who he called Twinkle, that was his nickname, was kind of the House husband, basically. Yeah. You know, he was the one that decorated it and, you know, kind of kept the house. I mean, I think, was he the one who originated that? Because I think they're called twinks when they're younger and... Oh, maybe. I'm sure he didn't originate I know, it, but... but, like, anyway. So, Dennis was very attracted to David. And they did have sex some, but not, like, on the reg. So, Dennis was... So happy and content because all he wanted was someone to be with him. You know, that was why he was so unsatisfied with the casual sex because he just wanted someone to come home to. Yeah. And so he was loving having them living together. Okay. They lived together about a year and their relationship started to to be strained. They started sleeping in separate beds and then they both kept, they both started bringing home casual sex partners they started arguing, and finally, in May of of 77, he kicked David out. I wonder what it caused it. I don't know. So, for about the, for the next 18 months, he, you know, had casual relationships again, was going, kind of retreating back to what he was like as a child after his grandfather died, where he was very reserved and reclusive and yeah. that kind of thing. He became a workaholic, you know, all those things to really started drinking again heavily. Yeah, self-medicating. Exactly, because he's depressed. And, you know, one of the articles talked about how he didn't feel worthy, had some suicidal ideations. You know, he just was not in a good place. In December of 1978, Dennis encounters his first victim. His first victim is 14-year-old Stephen Holmes. No. So Dennis had been drinking alone quite heavily when he met Holmes. So, again, he had been drinking by himself, decided, like, I have got to leave this flat. I have to go out. I have to go see people. I have to get out of this. So while he's out, he saw Stephen at a pub. He's a young guy, you know, and he was like, hey, you want to come to my house and drink with me? And so, Stephen Holmes was like, 
Sure. So they both got really shit face and then and fell asleep. So the next morning, Dennis w- wakes up to see Stephen Holmes in his bed. And so he said that he was afraid to wake him because he didn't want him to leave. Because, again, all he wanted was someone to just stay with him. Yeah. Just stay with him at his house. And he'd be cool. So when he saw Stephen laying there asleep, he was like, this guy's going to stay with me over the new year, whether he wants to or not. So he reached for a tie and straddled Stephen and strangled him into unconsciousness. Golly. After he strangled him unconscious, he filled a bucket with water and drowned Stephen. Why? After he drowned Stephen, he masturbated twice over the body. Then he buried Stephen underneath the floorboards. Stephen remained under the floorboards for almost eight months. Ooh. Before Dennis built a bonfire in the garden, remember remember he had sole access to it, yeah. and burned his body on August 11th, 1979. Ew. This is a quote that I've got to read. i got to read this from Dennis. I eased him into his new bed, and by bed he means, he means under flower the flower bed. No, oh. under the floorboards. A week later, I wondered whether his body had changed at all or had started to decompose. I disentered him and pulled the dirt-stained youth up onto the floor. The dirt-stained youth? His skin was very dirty. I stripped myself naked and carried him into the bathroom and washed the body. There was practically no discoloration, and his skin was pale white. His limbs were more relaxed than when I had put him down there. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. So... He took a little hiatus from, remember, he burned the body in August of 79. In October of 79, Dennis came across a student from Hong Kong named Andrew Ho. Dennis met Andrew Ho at St. Martin's Lane Pub and took him to his flat, promising alcohol, sex. Dennis attempted to strangle him. And I will say that one article made it sound like he just strangled him to kill him. And then one article said that it was actually Andrew who wanted to try some bondage play. Uh huh. And then, of course, Dennis couldn't help himself. He's yeah. got a tie around this kid's neck and it went too far. Yeah. Because that's how he almost killed Steven before right. he drowned him. But so I'm, I don't. Which came first, chicken or egg? It doesn't fucking matter. He strangled him, and yeah. it went too far. So Andrew managed to get away and went straight to the police. Dennis was questioned about it, but Andrew Ho decided not to press charges. <gasps> Fuck. And so I wonder how much of that has to do with one, the times. Oh, for sure. And two, culture. Mm-hmm. Because you know, if he pressed charges. He would have to go through all this. His yeah. name would be known, he, you know, that he went to have sexual relations with another man. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. And also, what if, like, we don't know how the police made him feel. Absolutely. you know. Oh, absolutely. Okay. So, two months after the attempted murder of Andrew Ho, Dennis met 23-year-old Canadian student named Kenneth Ockenden. So, Kenneth had been touring England and visiting relatives, and so 
they were both drinking in a pub. And when Dennis found out that he was there as a tourist, he was like, oh, well, I can show you some of the sights around London. Mm-hmm. Come on down. So, of course, Kenneth was like, absolutely, let's go have fun. They go to basically, so they go buy some whiskey, rum, beer, all of that. And Dennis can't remember exactly when, but they were, so they were sitting at his apartment or his flat, listening to music. Kenneth had some headphones on with a little cord, much like we're doing right now. Don't get any fucking ideas. And Dennis used the cord of the headphones and strangled him. After he strangled him, he dragged him across the floor and remembers, like, one of the memories that he has of that killing is the wire being wrapped around his neck as he, like, pulled him across the floor, like, it, like, dragging Mm -hmm. with him. After he moved him, he poured himself a glass of rum and continued listening to the music on the headphones. Wow. Yeah. He had to set the mood, you know. One of the articles, too, about the interaction with Kenneth was that they had had a really good time and that when Dennis thought about the fact that Kenneth was supposed to fly home back to Canada the next day, Mm. he panicked because he didn't want him to leave him. And so, again, it just ties back into his... Not fear of abandonment, but need for someone to stay with him. Yeah. Well, one, hey, how about this, Dennis? Just say, hey, Kenneth, I like you. We're having fun. Why don't you stay here free of charge? Besides, listen to this awesome album, and I'm going to choke the shit out of you. I know. So the next day, Dennis went and got a Polaroid camera and took pictures of Kenneth's body in suggestive positions oh shit nothing ever is good with the polaroid camera i know so he just like he would his fantasies and how he positioned himself Mm -hmm. he positioned the corpse spread eagle like above him on his bed and he would just like sit there and watch television with the body just hanging out (laughs) and then he wrapped the the body in plastic bags to stow the corpse in the floorboards then It said, like, over the next fortnight, four different times, he would pull the body up from the floorboards and just put it in the armchair beside him to watch TV with him. So, again, he just, I mean, it's fucked up. I'm not saying what he's doing was right or trying to justify it. But I feel like in his mind, he just wanted someone with him. Yeah. Well, in that case, get a fucking blow-up doll. Right. I mean, they're both lifeless, you know? Yeah. Ugh, gosh. Also, though, this guy's name is Dennis, and BTK loved to do his own little bondage shit. Mm-hmm. And I'm, like, getting a little vibe from Dennis Old Dennis, and is Dennis the Menace. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. So, Dennis, his third victim was 16-year-old Martin Duffy. And this happened in May of 1980. So Duffy was a student, a catering student, who was homeless. And he had hitchhiked to London without his parents knowing. That's never the start, a good start to a story. No. And so Dennis offered that he could spend the night with him. Gave him a couple of beers. Let him go to bed. While he's in bed, Dennis climbs on top of him, traps his arms underneath the covers, and strangled him. 
Martin went limp, but he was still alive. So Dennis carried him into the sink and drowned him, or carried him into the kitchen and drowned him in a sink full of water. Oh my gosh. Then he took him to the bathroom and got in the tub with him. Ooh. This guy loves to do extra fucking work. After he bathed him, he took him back to the kitchen and put him on a kitchen chair, then took him to the bed where he had been strangled. I'm not even going to go into all the sexual stuff but that he did with the corpse. But he, he stored him in the cupboard for two full days. And then when he noticed that he started to bloat because of decomposition, quote, he went straight under the floorboards. Damn. So after the murder of Martin, he started killing more frequently. Yeah, escalating. That word. In August of 1980, Dennis met 24-year-old William David Sutherland. William Sutherland, who went by Billy, he was a sex worker that apparently Dennis didn't even want to take home. (laughs) But supposedly Billy followed him after they went bar hopping. Oh, shit. And Dennis says that he barely remembers even strangling him until he found his body the next morning at his house. Damn. You know, if that's true, poor Billy, imagine when this happens and you're like, what the fuck did I do? Like, why did I follow this person? I know. The next murder was Douglas Stewart. Well, this was an attempted murder in August of 1980. Douglas Stewart said that Dennis attacked him, that he fell asleep in the armchair, and when he woke up, he found that his feet were tied, and Dennis was putting a tie around his neck. He fought back, knocked Dennis over, and Dennis told him to leave. <laughs> leave, motherfucker. No. Um, Get the fuck out of here. If you won't let me bondage you. <laughs> bondage you. <laughs> Okay. You can tell that's her cup of tea. (laughs) So, Douglas called the police, like, to to the place. And this was to to the Melrose place. Oh, he called them, like, sent them there. Yeah. So, when the police got there, they knocked on the door, and, you know, they could tell that everybody had been drinking. Dennis was, you know, shocked by what they said. You know, what are you talking (laughs) about, police officer? And so they were, the cops were like, okay, this is clearly a homosexual encounter. Both sides are hiding something. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody's really telling the truth. They made the police report, but Douglas Stewart never followed up as he was supposed to. Gosh. So nothing came of it. Between November of 1980 and May of 1981, Dennis killed seven other men who were never identified. Whoa. So... He's, I hate to say this this way, but racking up all these bodies, you know, only the one that he burned in the courtyard. And so, and he's got them all underneath the floorboards. And so this was starting to attract insects and foul odor, especially through the hot summer months. Oh, gosh. Febreze, Febreze, Febreze. So, again, remember, he would often bring the bodies back from... The floorboards so he could play house, basically, yeah. with them. 
And he would always, like, he would note that, I'm just going to say the insect activity on the bodies. So he put deodorants underneath the floorboards, sprayed insecticide in the flat twice a day. But, of course, the odor and the flies were still there. Yeah. So, in late 1980, he took out all of the bodies from the floorboards and dissected each one of the victims that he had had since 1979. Ew. So, then he burned them all in one big fire that he had in the courtyard. So, in order to hide the smell of, like, the burning flesh... Of the bodies, Mm -hmm. you know, he put an old car tire over it. So when people smelled it, Uh, they would think it was the tire. Fuck. So three different neighborhood kids watched the bonfire. And later, Dennis recalled, he felt like it would have seemed, quote, in order if he had seen these children, quote, dancing around a mass funeral pyre. So after the fire had burned out, he used a rake to make sure that all of the debris was not recognizable as bones. And there was one skull that was still intact. And this is Dennis's quote about the skull. I could only relate to a dead image of the person I could love. The image of my dead grandfather would be the model of him at his most striking in my mind. It seemed necessary for them to have been dead in order that I could express those feelings, which were feelings I held sacred for my grandfather. It was a pseudo-sexual infantile love, which I had not yet developed and matured. The sight of them, my victims, brought me a bitter sweetness and a temporary peace and fulfillment. As he smashed the skull into pieces with the rake. Wow. So. At least he didn't keep it. True. The final victim murdered at Melrose Avenue was, one one thing says 23-year-old, one thing says 24-year-old, Malcolm Barlow. He was murdered, wait for it, September 18th, 1981. What? That's today's date. Yes. Also, my sister Casey's birthday, so happy wow. birthday, Casey. Sorry, this is a sad story. and But, yeah, so he was murdered on Casey's first birthday. Whoa. So... Malcolm was a child of the system. He had been orphaned. He had mental issues. He like it. Well, the articles just say he was an orphan with mental problems. So I don't know if it was mental illness. I don't know if he had some sort of like intellectual disability. Yeah. I don't know. It was also said that Malcolm was a pathological liar, but that Dennis found him loitering outside of his home saying that he was weak, had epilepsy, So Dennis took him inside and called the ambulance. When Malcolm was released from the hospital, he came back to sit on Dennis's doorstep until he came, until Dennis came home. So Dennis invited him in for a drink. And, you know, while he was there before Malcolm fell asleep, he, Dennis was like, this kid's annoying. Um, (laughs) and so he decided to strangle him. Imagine that. So the next day he, stuffed him into a cabinet under the kitchen sink. It said that, like, the next day after, you know, he had put him in the, under the kitchen sink, that he just hung out in his flat with a half dozen other bodies 
awaiting disposal and that some of them he would keep in bed with him for sexual purposes for as long as a week and that having control over the men thrilled him and that like the fact that the bodies, the dead bodies wouldn't respond back was a huge sexual fantasy for him as we talked about. Yeah. And that it gave him a feeling of appreciation basically, which is, it makes no damn sense. Right. So in mid 1981, Dennis's landlord decided that he wanted to renovate. So he asked Dennis to leave the property. And so he was like, eh, I don't want to go. But his landlord was like, I'll give you some money. And he was like, Okay. <laughs> so he moved into an attic flat at 23D Cranley Gardens. And this was in North London in October of 1981. The day before he left the property, though, he burned the rest of the bodies, the last of the five victims. And that was like the third and last bonfire that he had. Again, put a tire on the bonfire so that you couldn't smell it. So now let's flash forward. He's moved to 23 Cranley Gardens. So here, he didn't have access to a garden. because, And he was in the attic flat, so he wasn't able to put bodies in the floorboards anymore. Right. So the first two months he was there, he met people, you know, had them come over, but didn't kill any of them. Except he did try to strangle Paul Nobbs. He was a 25-year-old so this was on Dennis's 36th birthday. He took him back to his house where they drank. When they they went to bed at 2.30, Paul woke up with a really bad headache. He woke up again at 6 and went to the kitchen. In the mirror, he saw that he had deep red marks all over his throat and that the whites of his eyes were bloodshot and his face looked really oh my bruised. Gosh. So Dennis was like, man, you look really bad. You should probably go see a doctor. And so he was like, okay. So he went to the um, <laughs> infirmary at the university and they were like, um, somebody sh- strangled you. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's what had happened. Yeah. You in danger, boy. Yeah. And so he did not report the incident. Again, it goes to the time. Yeah. It goes to, it was the, you know, they're homosexual men. It was a sexual encounter. He's, he's not going to report it. Right. It's just like even today when sex workers don't report rape and abuse from Johns or yeah. their pimps. Yeah. Because nobody's going to listen to them. Yeah. That is so freaking sad. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in one of the articles, I found an attempted murder that wasn't in a couple of the other ones of Tashu Mitsu. I know I said that wrong. Azawa, and this was on New Year's Eve of 1981. So Dennis had invited some of his neighbors up to his flat for a party, but they all had plans. And they were like, you know, he looked really shit-faced. That made us uncomfortable. And then they heard him leave his house and then come back with someone. Then they heard a commotion, and someone came running down the steps, sobbing, and ran out the front door. And that was Azawa. And he told the police that Dennis had tried to kill him and that he had approached him with a tie stretched between his hands, but there was no follow-up investigation. Whoa. The number of times that the fucking police did not follow up is maddening. Right. Like, the num- if, if that very first victim, 
if they would have believed that one or, like you said, not harassed him probably as a victim mm-hmm. and that he would have so many people would have been, could have, yeah. could have been spared. And then I feel bad because you know it's going to come out because obviously he gets caught because you're talking about it. But to be one of those people who survived. I know. And didn't go through with it. I know. I can't imagine what they're living with. Yep. In March of 1982, Dennis met 23-year-old John Howlett. They were in a pub drinking together. And Dennis brought him home again with the promise of alcohol and all of that. They went home. They watched a movie. John ended up falling asleep at his house. And... So Dennis tried to wake him up a couple of times and just sat on the edge of the bed, drinking rum, staring at John, and decided to kill him. So, I know. They, so he started to strangle him, and they got into a huge scuffle. Um, Like, John ended up strangling Dennis a little bit as to protect himself. Yeah. Dennis ended up getting the upper hand and strangled him with an upholstery strap, and Rendered him unconscious again and had to, like, go back to his living room because he was so shaken from actually almost being overpowered. Mm -hmm. And so it took three more attempts over the next 10 minutes to kill John before he decided to fill his bathtub up with water and drown him. Wow. Then in May of 1982, Dennis met Carl Stoder who was a 21-year-old homosexual male. So they met at a pub, and, you know, through their conversation, he found out that Carl had just, he was depressed. He had just gotten out of a really bad relationship. So Dennis gave him a bunch of alcohol, told him that he could come to his house, and that, you know, promised that he had no intention of any sex. Oh, gosh. And so then they got back to, they got to his apartment, drank lots more alcohol, and Carl fell asleep. Well, he woke up being strangled, and Dennis was whispering loudly to him, stay still. Oh, my God. Oh, that gives me chills. Yes. Initially, Carl thought he was trying to free him, um, like trying to help him, because he was kind of in this state of unconsciousness, you know. God bless it. And then heard water running. And before he realized he was, like, before he realized that he was in the water with Dennis, yeah, with Dennis trying to drown him. Fuck. Um, So he was able to briefly, like, raise his head above water and was able to gasp, no more, please, no more, before Dennis submerged him in water again. So Dennis thought that he had killed him. And so put him sitting up in the armchair. And so when he's sitting in the chair, Dennis's dog licked Carl on the face. And that's when Dennis realized that he still had, he was clinging to life. He still had a little bit of a heartbeat. And so he covered his body in blankets and lay him in his bed. Carl regained consciousness. And when he did, Dennis played it off, like hugged him and was like, you almost strangled yourself in the zip tie of the sleeping bag and that he had to resuscitate him. So over the following two days, Carl was kind of coming in and out of consciousness. And when he gained enough strength 
he started to question Dennis as to like him being in the water and, you know, being strangled. And Dennis said that basically he had gotten caught up in the zip of the sleeping bag following a nightmare. And so he placed him into the cold water because he was, quote, in shock. And so Dennis ended up like letting him go. Okay. Well, I was nervous. Like, don't question him. Just go. I know. I know. Be like, okay, thanks for saving my life. Later. Yeah. So, again, he believed him to an extent, enough to, like, get out of there, you know. Yeah. But he never went to the police. Gosh. Yes. So, then, in late 1982, Dennis met Archibald Graham Allen. He sounds fancy. Right. This is just such a cold detail to me that he, like, they had breakfast together, and he remembers, like, sitting, eating an omelet, like, deciding to kill Archibald. So, the quote from this, so, one thing was talking about how, like, he was sitting there eating an omelet, but then this said, his quote was, I noticed he was sitting there, and suddenly he appeared to be asleep or unconscious with a large piece of omelet hanging out of his mouth. And he said at that point, he decided to strangle him. Oh, my gosh. So, I don't buy that. I think that they were eating and he was like, I'm going to fucking kill him. Yeah. So, then in January of 1983, we're, we're getting there, guys. I know this is long. But I feel like I want to highlight all these victims because I think that's important. Yeah. But, okay. So, in January of 83, Stephen Sinclair... He w- Okay, so Stephen Sinclair was a drug addict who also was a sex worker. And so that is how Dennis lured him into his house. So Steve did some drugs while he was at Dennis's house and fell asleep. And so whilst he was asleep from his high, because he shot up, Dennis strangled him as well. So he did, after... He killed him. He did his kind of usual ritual of bathing the body. So he laid Sinclair's body out on his bed, put talcum powder all over his body, and then arranged three mirrors around the bed before he himself laid with the naked body for several hours. And he would turn Stephen's head toward him, and then he would kiss him and be like, good night, Stephen, and then would fall asleep with him. So as with all the other bodies, he dissected them, dismembered them, wrapped parts in plastic bags, and stored them around the house. I bet he really loved Easter egg hunts. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) So... Again, remember, he doesn't have access to the courtyard to burn. Mm -hmm. So what's one to do is... Garbage disposal. Even worse. Oh, fuck. He got some of the flesh, internal organs, and small small bones and flushed them down the toilet. Ew. Ew. Mm -hmm. That literally made me shiver. Ooh. He, He also boiled... The heads, hands, and feet of the victims to remove the flesh off of the bones. Oh, my God. So, on February 4th, 1983, he wrote a letter to complain to the estate agents that the drains were blocked. 
Oh, my gosh. And that the situation for both himself and the other tenants were was intolerable. Did he not get that they were blocked because of him? Mm-hmm. So. He done did it to himself. Mm-hmm. Okay. His murders were first discovered by a dino rod employee named Michael Cranton. No, Cratton who responded to the complaints made by Dennis and the other tenants about the drains being blocked. So he opened the drain cover outside of the house and he was like, what the hell is this shit? And like pulls it out and it's like flesh Ooh. and bones. And so he calls his supervisor and he left this part out, but you know, he fucking threw up. Right. So it's, it's turning dark. It's dusk. And so, the guy and his supervisor were like, okay, we're going to stop investigating this until the morning because, like, we can't see anything. Like, yeah. let's just, you know, put this on hold. So before he left the property, Dennis and another tenant named Jim Alcock talked with him to discuss, like, what, like, the sort, like, what that is. And when Dennis heard him say that the substance appeared to be human flesh, Dennis said, quote, it looks to me like someone's been flushing down their Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I even. I'm not going to eat KFC for a long fucking time. Right? Okay, and so in one source, it says that they just left the drains and we're going to come back and empty them out the next day. One source I found said that they actually... The Michael employee had actually bagged up all of the remains and called his supervisor. And his super was like, supervisor was like, absolutely not. That's not human remains. Just leave the bags. I'll come in the morning. We'll figure it out. Well, either way, whether they bagged them up or left them in the drains, the next morning when they came back, the drains had been cleared. Mm, magically, the colonel needed his chicken back. Yeah. So the drains had been cleared and or the bags were missing. Whichever source is correct. Either way. The shit was gone. Yeah. But he did find some, like, scraps of flesh and then and four bones in the pipe leading from the drain from the top house. In the attic. Mm-hmm. So, Michael and his supervisor were like, okay, this looks like it's from a hand. Ooh. So, they called the police. And so, they were like, okay, we don't know for sure if it's human or not. So, they took it to... A mortuary for a pathologist to see what it was. Yeah. He was like, mm -mm, this is human. And he found that that the piece of flesh that they had was from a human neck and had a lig ligature mark. Oh, shit. Foul play. So when they figured out that it was human remains and that it had been flushed from the top floor, you know, that gets linked back to Dennis Andrew Nielsen. So, when Dennis got home, the Detective Chief, Chief Inspector, Peter J introduced himself and his colleagues, saying, like, you know, hey, look, there's we're coming about this blockage in the drain. And Dennis was like, well, why are you interested in my drains? And the police officers were like, well, let us come in and we'll talk about it. So, they went up to his flat, and immediately they noticed the smell, and... Dennis continues to ask, like, why are you interested in mine? And so he faked, like, that he was shocked when they were like, <laughs> it's human remains we found. Mm -hmm. And they were flushed from here. And Dennis was like, 
good grief, how awful. <laughs> and the detective was like, don't mess about. Where's the rest of the body? And oh, shit. Then he calmly was just like. Under the floor. You're standing on it. Okay. It's in two plastic bags in this wardrobe over here. I just love to, like, I feel like this is a cultural, like, this is so cultural for England. And I maybe not accurate, <laughs> but I feel like everything I've ever watched of an investigation from the UK, they're like, just fucking tell us. And the criminal's <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> you whereas, got me. whereas here, it would be like this, because I watched a little YouTube video on this too, and it was actually the detectives. And he re- he really said, he was like, don't mess about. Where's the rest of the body? And he just was like, okay. I, it just blows my mind. Because here, it would be like the fucking criminal would sue him because they came into his house. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it just is so, it's just so different. Yes. The police ask him, like, are there other body parts? And Dennis says, it's a long story. It goes, back, it goes back a long time. I'll tell you everything. I just, I want to get it off my chest. Not here. At the police station. Oh, Lord. And so he was arrested for suspicion of murder. He is a drama king. Mm-hmm. So in the video I watched, too, the detectives were saying how, like, okay, like, you know, on the way to the police station, they were like, okay, we found a body. He's killed somebody. Okay. You know? And then he was saying, like, off chance, another detective was like, is there another body? And staring out the window of the police car, Dennis says, 15 or 16 since 1978. So the police had no idea. They thought one body. Off chance, they were like, well, is there another one? They had no idea that he had killed 15 people. Whoa. So he confessed to everything about how, you know, he killed them. He... Talked about how he kept them and dismembered them, all of that. He one thing though that he he was firm on was that he never had sexual intercourse with the corpse. He would masturbate with them. He would be affectionate to the corpse, but he never had sexual intercourse. Which is so weird because that was his whole fantasy. I know. Okay, so when he was questioned during his inter- interrogation about. Why the heads found at the Cranley Gardens location had been subjected to moist heat. He said that, again, he frequently boiled the heads of his victims in large cooking pots so that it removed the need to dispose of brain, the brain and flesh. And Ew. that the torso and the limbs of the three victims killed at that address were dissected within a week or so of their murder before being, and then he wrapped those the torso and the limbs in plastic bags and stowed them in three locations and that the internal organs, smaller bones are what he flushed down the toilet. When he was questioned about whether or not he had remorse, he said, I wished I could stop, but I couldn't. I had no other thrill or happiness. Why has it always got to be about you? So he tried to play the insanity card and it was not accepted. Because he, so he tried to plead not guilty by diminished responsibility. So he did go to trial on October 24th, 1983, charged with six counts of murder and two attempted murder. 
So the jury only deliberated for a day and found him guilty of the six counts of murder and one attempted murder. And so he was sentenced to life in prison with a recommendation that he serve a minimum of 25 years in prison. If you tell me he got released from prison, I'm going to be flabbergasted. So in December of 1983, when while he was in prison, he was cut on the face and chest with a razor blade by an inmate that resulted in him needing 89 stitches. Damn. So he was transferred to a vulnerable prison unit because there was concern about his safety. So in 1984, his minimum term of 25 years to life imprisonment was replaced by a whole life tariff by the Home Secretary, Michael Howard, like I said, December 1994. So that ensured that he would never be released from awesome. prison. So in 2003, he was transferred to another prison, and he was starting to work in a prison workshop. He translated books into Braille and spent much of his free time reading and writing. And he remained in prison until his death on May 12th, 2018. Whoa. Mm Mm-hmm. Damn. And that is Dennis Nilsson. Whoa. Mm Mm-hmm. Isn't that crazy? That is unbelievable. I know that was a really long one, but I just feel like this one is so important because there's so many things at play as to why he was able to kill 15 victims. Right. Over such a long period of time with so many attempted murders not putting an end to it. Yeah. And it all boils down to shame. Mm hmm. Shame and guilt. And persecution Mm -hmm. for him and his victims being gay. Yeah, their lifestyle. But see, I don't even, not a lifestyle. See, that's, that's the thing too, I feel like is when people say their quote lifestyle or their alternative lifestyle, like that's not the case. True. Like, I don't feel like that's appropriate terminology because I mean, I don't say that your lifestyle is that you're heterosexual. You know, yeah. it just is, they is who they is. You know, it's not <laughs> yeah, a lifestyle. So it's now it, you could say lifestyle for the ones who were sex workers or whatever that again was an added component in the lack of compassion. I assume from the police or right. the lack of reporting or all of yeah. that. But yeah, I just, there's just so many things at play with this case, which is why I think it was so important. To highlight every single victim and who the victim was when they met him and how they came to meet him, you know, whether it be in gay bars or because they're a sex worker or because they were some some sort of disenfranchised individual Mm -hmm. of the time. And it's unfortunate that so many of the things that made these men part of a marginalized population are still happening today Yeah, is what is why I think this is so important. Yeah. Like you said, homelessness, mental health issues, you know, like the, the poor guy that we talked about that it said that he was an orphan and had mental problems, you know, it didn't even yeah. really say what he had, but you know, mental illness and being just part of the LGBTQ community community. Yeah. Period. In 
even still today, oh, but for more sure. so in the 70s and 80s. Seriously. And that's even in London, you know, which I feel like is way more progressive than we are here. Right. You know, especially because if you think about what's happening in the United States at that time, the 80s, the boom of AIDS. Yeah. With the population of gay men. And, you know, so I don't know. I just think that yeah, I feel I know that was a long story, but I, that's why I think this one is so important because I feel like it's still so relevant that this could still happen today in certain yeah. areas of the world, including, including here. here. Yeah. And it just be swept under the rug because of who the victims are. Mm-hmm. And that pisses me off. And I think that's why these communities from podcasts are so important because it shines lights on people who are marginalized or disenfranchised in yeah. those ways. 100%. So I'm stepping off my soapbox <laughs> and I'm letting you take over. All right. Okay. And since Carrie, you know, took 5,000 years to tell that story, <laughs> which it was very good and very informative and I really enjoyed it, but you know, more than half of our podcast episode. I did pre-warn her that yes. my story was quite long. And so to do a short one. Yes. So I did do a short one, but it's still a very good one. Good. Okay. Picture it. It is 1939 in Chicago, Illinois. Are we going to the World's Fair? No. We've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. All right. Sorry, H.H. H. Holmes. <laughs> Who wasn't even... The masterful murderer that we all thought he was. Nope. Biggest letdown in 2018 was finding that shit out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, all right. Like I said, picture it, 1939. This guy, Jerry Paulus, is living his best life, dancing with a beautiful blonde woman at Liberty Grove and Hall, which is a dance hall. That was near 47th Street and Mozart. Okay, so how I imagine this scene is the kiss the girl scene from Little Mermaid. Mm -hmm. When, like, she can't talk. She doesn't talk a lot. But she's, like, alluring. And there's something about her. And it's just this magical moment. And he's, like, all in love. And she's all looking innocent and stuff. Okay, So that's what's going on. Okay. He's drawn to her and he's like, would you like to dance? And she's like, yes. And so they dance the fucking night away. Okay. So I literally wrote this. Oh my God. Carrie writes a dissertation and I write this. After a long night of jiving and shit, she was (laughs) like, hey boy, I need a lift. (laughs) (laughs) well you know we all have our strengths (laughs) all right so when they got to his car she directed him to drive down archer avenue and later on he admitted that he was confused because earlier in the evening she had told him where she lived and he knew it was way far the fuck away from Archer Avenue. And so he asked her about it and she was like, I just want to go down Archer Avenue. So as I drove down the street, 
They approached the gates to Resurrection Cemetery, and she asked him to pull over. She said that she had to get out, and so he was again confused and not able to understand why she would want to get out there. At a cemetery. Yeah. So, but I'm picturing it like 2 a.m. Right. And so he's like, all right, I'll let you out, but I'm going to walk you across the street. And she refused to let him. And so she turned to face him, and she said, this is where I have to get out. But where I'm going, you can't follow. So he was like, the fuck? You know? And before he could respond, like, get his wits about him, she got out of the car, ran toward the cemetery gates, and she vanished before she reached them, right in front of his eyes. What? Yep. And so that was the moment that he was like, I just danced with a ghost. That's some Casper shit right there. Right? So he's like, later on, like a few days later, he's like, I remember her address. Something has to be up. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. he, I didn't even go into detail because I said jiving and shit and that just included this. But like they even kissed one time and held hands, obviously, because they were dancing. And he said that it was colder But she was skinny. It was cooler outside, Mm -hmm. you know, like. So it's like, okay. So he was like, that's weird. I mean, were other people there? Yeah. They saw her? Yeah. Okay. So he's like, all right, this girl just fucking ghosted me. (laughs) In the truest sense of the term. (laughs) Yes. So he went to the address and there's a woman who answered the door and he said, Hey, you know, like I went on this date and described the girl, blonde hair, blue eyes, thin, tall. And she's like, no one lives here. That looks like that. And like right past her, he saw a picture and he was like, no, that's her. And the woman was like, that's my daughter. And she's been dead for years. Holy shit. Yeah. Another time. Fast forward a little bit. And it's a cold night in late December on the south side of Chicago. Ralph, a taxi cab driver, travels along Archer Avenue as rain and sleet are making a mess. And so it's kind of blurry, you know, how it gets all over Mm -hmm. your windows. But out of it, he's like, the fuck? Like, it's some white blob Mm -hmm. and so he rubbernecks around (laughs) you know and sees this beautiful girl and he thinks she's just drunk and also she's dressed like way underdressed she has this white cocktail dress on and a thin shawl and it's sleeting outside yeah um, so he describes her as a looker, a blonde. She was young enough to be my daughter, 21 tops. That was a direct quote. Okay. Can't do a Chicago accent. So there you go. <laughs> That's what you got. So she's stumbling along the uneven shoulder a little bit. And so he pulls over, stops the car, rolls down the window. And so she like approaches and he's like, fuck, she's beautiful. And so, again, she's got blonde hair, blue eyes. Her hair is kind of against her forehead because it's raining. 
But even through, like, her disheveled look, he's, like, struck by her beauty. So, he's like, look, I'll give you a free ride. You know, on my mustache. No. Damn. Um. <laughs> but, so he, she's like, all right. So, she gets in the back seat. He's looking into the rearview mirror. And all I can picture is Patrick Swayze in Dirty Dancing mm-hmm. when he, like, looks at her changing in the rearview mirror. Yeah. Anyway, I live my life through movies. But, so he's like, where do you want to go? And she just simply replies that he should just keep driving down Archer Avenue. So he goes in gear, goes forward, sees that she's shaking, puts the heater up some, you know, like being a gentleman, trying to see what he can do. So he comments about the weather, comments about everything, and she's not really talking. And he's like, this bitch ain't giving me a good Uber review. (laughs) So finally she answers him, but her voice kind of like wavers and it's almost like fearful. Mm -hmm. He can't really tell if she's speaking to him or just kind of speaking to herself. But the one thing she says is the snow came early this year, like just somber, softly, kind of a murmur. Mm Mm-hmm. So he's like, yeah, it did. And attempts to create more small talk. Picture it, me trying to talk to you before you had your coffee. (laughs) (laughs) True story. Or if I'm playing Candy Crush. True story. (laughs) So he's like, all right, I'm not going to talk to her anymore. I'm just going to keep driving until she tells me to stop. Well, then she shouts at him. And she's like, pull over. Damn, don't be getting an attitude. It's a free ride. Right. And so she's like, this is where I need to get out. Damn. So he like jerks the steering wheel over because a soft, somber mm-hmm. person just like yeah. went Linda Blair on him. Yeah. So, of course, it's right in front of Resurrection Cemetery. And he's like, you can't get out here. This is a fucking cemetery. Yeah. And so, while he's saying that, he looks in the rearview mirror, and he realizes that he's in the cab alone. (gasps) The girl's no longer in the back seat. He never heard the door open or close. She just simply disappeared. And she's nowhere to be seen outside. Right. Okay. So, those are two reports. And there has been 36 substantiated accounts of encounters with Resurrection Mary. Have so it's you ever all the heard same girl. No, so it's all the same girl. Yep. So reports of this girl began in the middle 1930s, and motorists started to say that when they were going by the Resurrection Cemetery, there was a young woman attempting to jump onto the running boards of their what automobiles. The fuck? Yeah. One, she wasn't trying to do on yours because you don't have fucking running boards. I mean, I offered for you to buy me those, and you haven't. <laughs> right. I don't need them. You do with your little legs. Yes. So. <laughs> Lord Farquaad needs uh, some help. <laughs> and Shrek over here doesn't. <laughs> what is Marley Donkey? <laughs> oh, God. That's so funny. All right. So then not long after the woman trying to hop aboard the cars, 
this woman became more mysterious. She wasn't doing that anymore. She wasn't right outside the cemetery. She had went further away and closer to the O. Henry Ballroom, which is now known as the Willowbrook. She was reported by the roadside of the ballroom, inside the ballroom, and many young guys said they met her, Mm -hmm. danced with her, talked to her, but she was never a conversationalist, Mm -hmm. you know, but again, it was was, like that. It was like hard to get. She was, you know, yeah. Yeah. Elusive almost. Is Mm -hmm. that the word I want to say? Yeah. So then they would offer a ride. And of course she accepted because girl got heels on Mm -hmm. and always leave them on Archer Avenue. And when they got close to Resurrection Cemetery, she would disappear or yell at them to stop. Mm -hmm. More common were the people, motorists claiming that they saw her on the side of the road offer a ride, then she would vanish from their car. Every driver described this girl, same details. This is why you don't pick up hitchhikers. Right? Yes. So, and again, she was wearing a white party dress, and some people said she had a shawl on. Some said she had a little clutch, you know. Mm -hmm. So some had more recollection than others. Some people would actually have worse experiences with her where they would hit her in the street <gasps> and they would actually recount hearing the thud. Oh my God. Of them running over her oh when they God. stopped the car, got out to look, she would there be was gone. Nothing there. Oh my God. Could you imagine? No. I mean, like, even when you run over, like, a squirrel or something, and you're, like, it, like, it just, like, it, yes. that sound is just in your gut. It's just, yes. it's heartbreaking. Could you Makes imagine? Makes stomach hurt. Yes. Could you imagine if you thought or actually did hit a human being? No. No. Some said that they didn't hit her, but would go straight past her. Like, through like her? Like, through her, yeah. Shit. And then, if she's, like... All in white like that, like when the taxi driver picked her up, I mean, she's like probably like if it's like sheets of snow and sleet and stuff, she's probably like blending in Mm -hmm. with it, too. So it's like, was that? No. Was it, though? Right. Yes. So there's no one person that is Resurrection Mary. She does not have a definite history. She got her name Mary because... Jerry, the guy that danced with her and stuff, said that she said Mary. And, like, other people have said that name as well. And so they call her Resurrection Mary because of Resurrection Cemetery. So was she not – what was her name for the person that lived at that house that he saw the picture of? I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Who the fuck knows? Uh, Jerry, uh, can you can you tell me this? I'm going to need you to come through to someone else's Ouija board <laughs> and tell us her name because we ain't fucking doing it. <laughs> Hell no, because we get Zozo. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the most accurate version of the story of Resurrection Mary concerns a young girl who was killed while hitchhiking down Archer Avenue in the early 1930s. Oh, God. 
apparently she had spent the evening dancing with a boy, like her boyfriend at O'Henry Ballroom. At some point, they got into an argument. And so even though it was cold, she was like, fuck this. I'd rather freeze to death than be with that scrub. So she started walking and uh, she hadn't got that far and she got struck and killed by a car. Shit. The guy, it was a hit and run. So he just took off, left her there to die. Oh, my God. Yeah. So they say now she ventures from the grave back to ballrooms, mm-hmm. you know, to yeah. to find her boyfriend to relive that night. Right. There were, I didn't go into detail about it, but there were several different people that they said, like, but none of them seemed to really match, like. Of who hit her? No, of this girl. Of who it could be. Okay. okay, Yeah. Because, like, some would have brunette hair. Like, everything would line up, but then they'd have brunette hair. Then, you know, like, some, it was like a 12-year-old girl, blah, blah, blah. I just don't understand why, then, if it's. That guy's like, it was her on the picture. How Well, how'd she die? And you know what I mean? Like, why hasn't yeah. that been put together? I don't know. Well, he never wavered from his story for, like, years. Um, like, until he died. And he never got, like, paid for anything. Yeah. You know, so, again, what does he have to why would gain? He, yeah, why would he lie? But saying that, he might have... Embellished? Embellished. I would, could only think of bedazzled. <laughs> <laughs> I got one thing on my mind, and it might be... Ghostic. That's right. <laughs> oh, gosh. But anyway, he might have embellished on that. Yeah. You know, just to try to prove his point. Yeah, he was like, okay. Yeah. Or it might have... I'll I'll look more into it. I called myself looking into it, but I don't know. We'll see. That's country for she remembers. The first time I ever heard somebody say, I call myself, da, 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 da. I was <laughs> really? like, yes, I was like, that was like 10 years ago. I was like, you what <laughs> I call, And I say it now. I call myself looking there. <laughs> I had no idea. That's redneck. That's not or redneck. I, I mean, that's redneck. <laughs> <laughs> it may not be. It may be like the proper terminology, but I'm redneck and didn't know it. <laughs> Do you call yourself? (laughs) (laughs) I call myself not calling myself on that one. Okay. Another sighting in 1973, Mary was said to have shown up at least twice to a nightclub called Harlow's on Cicero on the southwest side of Chicago. So they said that she danced alone in a faded white dress and despite the fact that bouncers checked IDs of everyone who came in, no one ever saw her come in or go out. She was just there. Wow. Later that same year, an annoyed cab driver entered Chet's Melody Lounge, and it's located across Archer from the gates of Resurrection Cemetery. And he was looking for a fair who had jumped out. He's like, she didn't tip. She didn't even pay. Yeah. She didn't do anything. Where the fuck is that bitch? Yeah. You like how I said fuck and then bitch? Yeah. So they're like, well, what did this person look like? He describes her and they're like, 
that person has not come in here. Yeah. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. You know? And he's like, look, she vanished from my fucking cab right around here. Where the fuck's she going to go? Yeah. A cemetery or the bar? Yeah. And they're like, no. No one fits that fucking description here. So. Who Sorry does about it, you. Yeah. Who does it sound like, though? Tall, blonde, blue eyes. Yeah. Thin. Right across from the cemetery. And vanishes. On August the 12th, 1976, Cook County police officers investigated an emergency call. This girl was like, I fucking hit somebody. You know, like, she's laying over here. I'm so scared. You know, like, I need help. And this was the intersection of 76th Street and Roberts Road. So when they got to the spot, they found the young woman in tears and they asked where the body she hit was and she like pointed over there and no one was there and you can clearly see that a human like someone was laying on that grass yeah but no No one was there mm -mm. so in another time in 1976 a couple had reported seeing a young girl who appeared to be locked inside the cemetery. And so when police went to search for her, because, you know, of course they're going to call up and be like, yeah. uh, someone's locked in that fucking cemetery. Yeah. They found that the bars on the front gate had been burned, <gasps> and the burns looked like handprints. What? But the cemetery denied that it was anything. They said it was a maintenance issue that a truck had ran into it. Hmm. And it wasn't anything like that. But, again, who knows? It could be that they were trying to get people to stop coming. And so they actually eventually, actually eventually, sawed off the bars to get people to stop coming to check it out. Yeah. So, during the 1970s and the 1980s, Mary sightings were... What's the word? Through the roof. <laughs> Through the roof. That's a good one. It says that people from all different walks of life, from cab drivers to ministers, had said they picked up this girl and she vanished. Yeah. Again, explaining what she looked like to the detail, you know, like in detail. All the same. Yeah. And they think it was so, she was so active because they were, they were remodeling the cemetery, like it was undergoing mm. construction and stuff like that, so it made her restless. Yeah, that's what I'm gonna say. She was wasn't at rest, which is restless. <laughs> <laughs> so I found one story, and I didn't go on Reddit or anything like that this time, but this was from Disclosed TV, and the person's name is Mitch. And he says, back on February 27th of 2014, I went to my local auto parts store here where I live in West Bloomfield, Michigan to get a headlight bulb for my car. The store wasn't busy, so this young man behind the counter said he would take me to where the bulbs are located. As we walked there, I asked if he was new at the store since I'm a regular customer thanks to my forever needing repair vehicle, and never saw him before. He said he started to work three weeks ago and was working part-time while attending Wayne State University. 
When we got to the aisle where the headlights were, I took out my business card where I had written the part number of the particular bulb. Bulb. (laughs) And handed it to him. When he saw that I was a paranormal investigator, he looked at me, eyes wide, and in a whispering voice asked if I was truly a ghost hunter. I told him I used to be, but now I'm spending more of my time doing research on near-death experiences. Uh, He asked if I would listen to what happened to him a few months ago, and he said it concerned Resurrection Mary and asked if I was familiar with her story. And, of course, I'm just going to kind of paraphrase. Now, I don't know why I was reading it as a Sinister Sightings, because this isn't fucking Sinister Sightings. (laughs) So he's like, sure, Mitch. It's like, sure, tell me all about it. Come over to my house. Which we know from... I was going to say, I'll meet you at a coffee shop. Right? Okay, so... He arrived, and he, he they had coffee in the dining room, which, again, do not drink anything at a stranger's house. Mm-hmm. Please refer to the first two hours of this podcast. Right. So, the guy said that he had no classes on Friday, September the 13th of 2013, and none were scheduled for that Monday, so he decided to to drive back to Chicago, hang out with some friends of his. So that Saturday night, he had a few of the guys over to watch some football and have a few beers. Around 3 in the morning, imagine that, Mm -hmm. they decided to call it a night. So everyone had a ride except my friend Dave. And Dave didn't have a car, and he came with one of the guys who had left earlier. So he asked if he minded that guy to take him home. Uh, So he's like... Of course, I don't mind, which, again, do not drink and drive. Mm-hmm. I said again, but don't drink and drive. So he lived, like, in a town six miles away from this guy's house. He said it was a clear night, and he was, like, one of the only cars driving on Archer Avenue because it's fucking three in the morning. Right. So he was, like, kind of laughing to himself because he's going down Archer Avenue Alone, and he's lived here all his life. He's never seen Resurrection Mary. It's kind of like a joke, mm-hmm. you know? But it's like, oh, my God, what if I saw her? Because I feel like that's what we would do. Yeah. Um. So he dropped Dave off, turned around, and he was approaching a Troost Monuments, a business that was right across the street from Resurrection Cemetery. And he noticed this white Dodge Charger making a quick U-turn and a guy was sticking his arm out holding something in his hand and then I he realized that he was taking photos. So he was just like kind of rubbernecking along, creeping mm-hmm. along, taking these fucking photos. So by this time he's like bumper to bumper because he's like, what the fuck you doing, man? Yeah, hurry you up. Know? Yeah. So he sticks his head out the window and he's like, look across the street. And so this guy looks and he sees a glowing figure of what looked to be a young woman bathed in white light. And he said what was really odd was that the light seemed to come from within her. And so he said that at this point, the guy in the charger and he stopped their cars, got out and watched this figure kind of flow through the chain link fence and disappear into the cemetery. 
So one thing about this Resurrection Mary is I was getting deja vu or just like childhood memories of Are You Afraid of the Dark? My favorite fucking episode. And I always called it In the Still of the Night, but it's Mm -hmm. called... Do you know what I'm talking about? No, maybe I'm thinking... Girl, I just got real fucking excited that you knew. No, no, no. That's a, um, I'm thinking In the Heat of the Night, the oh. show. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, In the Heat of the Night. No, In the Still of the Night, that song. Yeah. But it's actually called The Tale of the Prom Queen. And I remember this, literally my favorite fucking episode. And it was about her? N- Close, no, sort of. Kind of. But, I mean, you know, she is a vanishing hitchhiker. She's not the only one. We've heard yeah. several different things. She's just, like, the most prominent of so many substantiated people saying that they've seen her or encountered her. But it was like a girl that was in the cemetery and like they conjured up like I think they even did like fucking a Ouija board basically. Yeah. Or like a seance to find something out and blah 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 blah. Ends up winding up she was this prime queen that had died and stuff, but her boyfriend never got there, blah, blah, blah. She died just like yeah. Resurrection Mary did. She got hit, blah, blah, blah. But her boyfriend at the end of it comes in his little ghost car, and she gets in, and, like, they ride away, and it's in the still of the night's playing my favorite episode. And so I was like, oh, my God, I love you, Resurrection Mary. If you've had any role in playing this damn episode. The only episode I remember of Are You Afraid of the Dark is I think these people would make prank calls, and so there was the phone police, but then there was also (laughs) a leprechaun. Oh, shit. And that's all I remember. Something about a leprechaun and the coming through the phone and the phone police and then being alone at home. Really? That's all I remember. There's another one that always scared me. And it was this guy who, I think it was called, like, Pinball Wizard or something. And do you know what I'm talking about? I think I remember that. And, like, he ends up being in a pinball game. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Always scared the fuck out of me. I wouldn't have remembered it, but I remember you. Like, like, now that you're saying it, I remember it. Yeah. Do they they have this? I don't know. Is it on Netflix or something? Netflix, Hulu. Please tell us. Please help us out because I need to watch it. Right? But that is Resurrection Mary. Short but sweet. I like that. Yay. It's something that's not scary, but it's still creepy. Yeah. But I will say also, you know, I hear, I hear, I have heard about vanishing hitchhikers and stuff, but I also heard that you should never look back in your back yes. seat. And that terrifies me. Yes. Like if I'm driving home or something and it's late and I'm like, don't look in your back seat because someone could be there and you yeah. don't need to look and make eye contact with them. Or even like my mom used to say, if you pass someone at night, like on the road, like they're standing on the road, mm-hmm. don't look back in your rearview mirror. Yeah. Because then they could like get in your car. Right. <laughs> I've always heard that too. Okay, good. I'm not the only one. That is it. I liked that one. 
Yay! So, what did we learn? Do not go to strangers' houses and drink things. Right. So yes. both of our fucking stories. Yes. Don't do it. Stranger danger. Totally fucking real. It's not safe. Meet in a public place and stay there. Yes. Also, if you're lonely, you don't have to kill people. Yeah. Especially if you're getting these disenfranchised people. Like, some of his people were homeless and stuff. I mean, I'm pretty sure... They could work out a fucking arrangement. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like. Or even if there's a sex worker. I mean, shit, there are people now who you can pay, literally, to just come spoon with you. Yeah. Again, this was in the 70s and the 80s. Yeah, totally. So all that shit didn't exist. But still, I mean, plenty of fucking people were lonely and didn't. Yeah. Kill, dismember, and... Oh, absolutely. All that shit. Absolutely. Two. If a beautiful girl who's way above you, like she's a 10 and you are like a 5 or below, and she really doesn't talk to you, but you're like drawn to her, and then she like interacts with you, don't be surprised when she fucking ghosts you. Damn. Damn. I mean, I'm just saying. Damn. (laughs) She went there, (laughs) y'all. I mean, they all need something from you. She needs to fucking ride to the cemetery. I mean, damn. She hits it and she quits it real fast. And she's not a succulus. A succulus. What are they called? A succubus. Same thing. (laughs) (laughs) No, she is a succulus. (laughs) Succulus. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) oh shit oh my gosh okay number three okay number three don't discount someone because of their station in life or their anything yeah their socioeconomic status their sexual preference anything anything just respect human beings yes we're all the same yes and what we need most is human fucking kindness. Yes. If if people were kind to him from the start and didn't treat him poorly because he was homosexual, mm-hmm. then, I mean, this probably all may have still happened because clearly he had some other issues going on. Yeah. But just be kind. Yeah. Treat humans the way humans should be treated no matter their differences from you i don't know i just can't understand how people could treat anyone like that i know you know and i'm not perfect oh no you know i know you're not (laughs) i mean i'm pretty fucking close no i know i've hurt people in the past and i know i've made fun of people i shouldn't make fun of and i mean that's part of growing up and that's part of you i mean people make mistakes yeah but just be kind. Learn and grow from your mistakes and just be kind. And that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. To learn and grow. And that's also why we love this community. Because y'all do teach us stuff and y'all are learning and growing with us. And that's pretty freaking cool. Yeah. That was insightful of me. Yeah. Yeah. Ditto. Yeah. 
what she said. <laughs> Have a bitchin' summer. <laughs> <laughs> and remember, creep it real and, and don't, don't get, get scared. scared.